It would be easier to tell you the horses that owner Sal Kuman doesn't partly own instead of the ones he does own, but one he owns has a really good shot to win this year's Kentucky Derby. We'll talk with Sal Kuman. Plus, surely if you have children who play sports, they've done all kinds of fundraisers in order to play. Bake sales, car washes, pancake breakfasts, right? Well, the Derby and Oaks have traditionally been the source of big fundraisers for student-athletes in Louisville, but we'll tell you why that won't happen this year. It's all straight ahead on this edition of In The Gate. They're in the gate. They're about to move in. They roll side. And they're off. As they move to the top of the stretch. It's a hit moving finish! This is In The Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can find us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn, the Pink Apple Podcatcher app, and of course in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And please take a minute to rate and review the show. Those reviews really help others find us, although I I don't suppose that the others will include the Mensa members at America's Best Racing. I assume that when their Fan Choice Awards are released in November, this show won't be included in their finalists for Best Podcast. But hey, remember the legendary show All in the Family? ABC turned it down twice. It won nine Emmys on CBS. So there's hope for us. He has completely changed the paradigm for horse ownership. In racing's heyday, Large, entrenched operations like Calumet, Green Tree, Phipps, and Sagamore bred and raced their own horses. Secretariat's syndication in the early 1970s led to the development of more partnerships in racing. And now there are some very well-known ones, Starlight Racing and Dogwood Stables, just to name a couple. But then there's Saul Kuman, who has really amplified the way partnerships are formed and managed. He's got partnerships of all kind, small percentages of a number of different horses using different partnership names, and it's often hard to follow. But one colt, of whom Kuman has owned a percentage since he was a yearling, has a chance to win America's most famous race. Authentic by a length. New York traffic won't go away. He's trying hard, and Dr. Post finding his best stride, but has five to make up. Authentic just breezing through the stretch. Opens up to lead it by three lengths. New York traffic trying so hard, and he is closing the gap now. Here comes New York traffic after Authentic. Authentic New York traffic are going to hit it together. Here it is. Photo finish. Authentic in New York traffic. If Authentic takes the Kentucky Derby, it would be a second for Saul Kuman in just seven years in the racing business. He was part of that cult, uh, what was his name, Justify, who won the Triple Crown two years ago. A dizzying rise to the upper echelon of the sport, and it is a pleasure to welcome for the first time here to Win the Gate, owner Saul Kuman. Let's start with Authentic. The finish of that win in the Haskell looked a lot closer at the end than you thought it would be at the 16th pole. Over the winter, his jockey Mike Smith said that the Colt almost threw him off going down the back stretch in the San Felipe. What do you make of Authentic? You know, he's a hard horse to figure out, to be honest. I mean, I think, you know, when you look at his PPs, you know, there's a lot to be excited about. I mean, he's, you know, he's been beat one time by one horse is a very, very good horse. So, there, you know, there's a lot to be excited about. He's well-bred. He's fast. He's trained by Bob Baffert. And he's, you know, going to the Kentucky Derby in a couple of weeks. And he's going to be, a, you know, I think a top five choice. So, you know, a lot to be excited about. I think 
he's a difficult horse to ride. According to Bob, you got to really get after him. When you look at the finish at the Haskell, when he was coming down the, the home stretch, we were, you know, pretty excited, thought he was going to win by about six or seven lengths, you know, and then it was obviously a lot closer than we were, uh, we were hoping for. So uh, we're hoping it was just him being a little bit goofy and, you know, and, and we'll have to see from there. So he is a little bit of a, uh, of a strange horse to get a line on, but I think, you know, I think anything can happen when those gates open at the Derby and he's obviously got some speed, you know, which, which can be uh, dangerous in there. Normally, this wouldn't even be a question worth answering or asking, but with the COVID-19 protocols, will Mike Smith be coming east from California to ride him? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't know the answer. I think, you know, my understanding is they put out some protocols for the jockeys and they needed to get there very early. I think they're looking back over those protocols. And my understanding is in the next few days, they're going to release what those are. And I think once that happens, you'll start to realize who's coming from Saratoga, who's coming from California. And then I think uh, the game of, of roulette will, will play itself out and we'll sort of figure out who's going to ride who. And, and uh, you know, listen, I think, I think we'll, we'll get a good jockey. Obviously, I hope it's Mike Smith, but if it's not, in Bob Baffert, you trust. And uh, I'm not worried about it at all. Are you a good roulette player? <laughs> no. Play my lucky number 13. That's about it. <laughs> you know, at Stick and Ball Sports, you often hear the complaint that owners just shouldn't run their sports teams the same way they run more traditional businesses. You know, that sports are, no pun intended, a different animal. Yet you run your racing operation similarly to how you approach the hedge fund industry. How have you been able to make that model work in racing? You know, I think it's it's smart to take things that you've learned in your business career and try to use them in anything else that you do. There are definitely some similarities to what we do in our day job to racing. And I think the first thing is obviously the people. What makes for a successful business or team are the people, right? I mean, I'm, I'm not the one picking the horses out of the sales. I'm not training them. And, you know, we've got a great team with Brad Weisbord and Liz Crow at BSW that help manage our day-to-day. You know, in addition, we've been super fortunate to work with a lot of unbelievable trainers, some of the best in the business. Um, and, you know, those are those are the people that are doing all the work. You know, we use a lot of data that we also use in our day job that helps us, you know, look at where we think horses should go, you know, who's good with two-year-olds, who's good with horses that we bring in from Europe. And we try to use that to help us make good decisions. You know, we use a, obviously some of the risk management tools that we've learned in our day job in terms of, you know, partnering with with lots of people so we don't always uh, own the whole horse. So we're able to spread our risk around. You know, our model's been we rather own a third of 100 horses than, you know, 100 percent of 33. That just works for us. doesn't work for everybody. I mean, it's just a little bit of a different way to do it. And that's a little bit how we, you know, how we operate our day, day job. So, uh, you know, I think the great thing about racing is there's there's no right or wrong way to do it. It kind of is what works for you and your team and your program. And, and we found a model that's worked for us. We've been, you know, we've been lucky early and we're just hoping that that can uh, continue to work for us for the next few years. You have multiple partnerships, head of Plains, Mattaquette, Sheep Pond, Monomoy. How are those determined? Does each have a different manager? How does it work? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I'm the manager of all of them. I've actually got three partners in essentially almost all the partnerships, so they're actually not that different. You know, Monomoy Stables has a few more partners in it, and, you know, occasionally we'll have an, uh, an extra partner and a few horses, some friends of ours that, that want to get involved. But it's generally, you know, a group of four of us. We've gone to the point now where, you know, Madigan is going to end up being our main stable. I think at the beginning, we thought it was easier every year to start a new entity. 
and we've realized that if not, it's kind of really, it's just confusing for people. So, you know, we still have a, a bunch of horses left in Head of Plains and we have Monomoy Girl who is still in Monomoy Stables. And outside of that, I think you'll see Madigan Stables be our main stable going forward. Owner Sal Kuman joining us here on In the Gate. Now, for all the successes you've had on the track, Lady Eli, Waybell Avenue, British Idiom, you mentioned Monomoy Girl, and we'll get to her in a minute. There are many more horses who don't make it to the top level, and you've said that you need a couple of home runs a year to pay the bills for the rest, which is not easy, of course. Look what happened to Wells Bayou, the Louisiana Derby winner you had now out with bone bruising. How much pressure do you feel to hit that home run or two every year? Oh, I feel it. You know, especially in a year like this where the purses have been cut dramatically, especially in the stakes due to COVID. You know, if we look at a year like this year without a few of the stallion deals that we've been able to do and a couple of big wins, you know, the financial picture of our stable would look much different. I listen, I think we spend a, a lot of time managing the bottom part of our stable. You'll frequently have trainers ask ask me, why do you always ask me about the bad horses that you have with me, not the good ones? And my answer is always well, the good ones I know you're focused on, the bad ones are the ones that drain the bills and, and that uh, that maybe we're not all as focused on. So I think we kind of take a little bit of a, a different approach. You know, listen, this game is about your top horses, right? You look back and, you know, if you take the two or three good ones out a year, everything looks much different. <laughs> That's grade one wins and financially and stallion deals and selling fillies. And it's all, you know, it all comes in that top group. So we feel that pressure every year. We don't force it. We don't really do anything different. You know, we have a, a program that we tweak every year. We decide what we think we're going to spend and where we want to spend it, how much on yearlings, how much on two-year-olds, how much on courses we're going to buy in Europe, how much on proven stuff in the U.S., you know, and try to put together the mosaic. And then at that point, you just hope you get lucky and you never know where it's going to come from, right? I mean, last year, British Idiom was a $40,000 yearling purchase. And, you know, a week before her first race, Brad Cox called us and said, hey, I'm going to send her to Saratoga. She's training well. I think she maybe can win. You know, next thing you know, you win the Breeders' Cup and have a champion, right? And that was not one that would have been expected. So it, it, they come from everywhere. You got to just have a process and believe in it. And then you need to get a little bit lucky at the end. Speaking of purchasing, you've said you prefer to purchase your horses privately rather than at auctions. What is the rationale behind that? Yeah, I think, you know, we have a combination of both. We do about 60% of our purchasing with horses that are already running and about 40% that would be, I would say, more the traditional way to do it, buying yearlings and two-year-olds. The reason that we buy more horses privately is we just feel like we have a little bit more information. We can do diligence. We can talk to the trainers. We can talk to the farms that broke the horses or the person that bought it as a yearling. You know, we can look at speed figures. We can see if maybe we think by buying it and moving it or buying into it, there might be something that we see that, you know, maybe they're running it on the wrong surface or a different distance or a different trainer would fit the horse better. So we're able to maybe add a little bit more value. Then when we buy a yearling, it's, you know, it's a little bit of, you know, back to our roulette analogy. <laughs> we're sort of buying them and hoping that we, that we get lucky on a few. I think that's the main reason, you know, sometimes you, you just kind of know what you're getting. I think there are also honestly less people doing it. There, there are more than more doing it now than we're five years ago, but you know, there are a lot of people that are buying year, yearlings, a lot of people buying two-year-olds unraced, and there are less players that are involved in buying, you know, proven racehorses. So we feel like maybe we have a little bit of an advantage and we've, We've bought a lot of them over the last five years. We've bought some really good ones. We've, we've bought some really bad ones. And you learn a lot from both. So maybe our data set for doing that is, uh, has, has just gotten a little bit deeper. And, you know, we feel like we sometimes have a little bit of an edge there. 
Now, I know you say you spend most of your time thinking about the bottom end of your stable, but we have to talk about Monomoy Girl, who missed all of 2019 after a championship season the year before. It would have been easy and maybe more financially prudent to retire her, yet she returned to racing here in 2020, and did she ever. Monomoy Girl now takes the lead with a quarter of a mile to the finish. It's Monomoy Girl in front. Vexatious up on the outside, moves to second. Mother Mother is now back running in third. Monomoy Girl asks for just a bit more by jockey Florent Giroux. Monomoy Girl wins the ruffian by a little more than two. What went into the decision to bring her back? Yeah, I mean, she's a special horse. She's uh, one of my, my favorites we've ever been part of. We've got a, a great group of partners that all love racing. You know, it was kind of an easy decision, actually, to, to bring her back. She had come back twice and had breezed and gotten very close to a race. I think at one point she was 10 days away from a race and then had, you know, two different issues, two different times. And none of them were major, but they were enough to keep her out another three or four months apiece. So Brad Cox obviously wanted her back. The, the group of partners loves racing. And when you get a filly that's that special, when you kind of think about everything she did in her three-year-old year, it's really, really hard to let her go. So we brought her back. Uh, you know, she's been knock on wood fabulous so far this year. She's going to, you know, run again, you know, on, on Oaks Day in a grade one. And then, you know, hopefully she'll, she'll run in the Breeders' Cup. And then we'll see what happens at the end of this year. We'll have to evaluate like we do with all the horses. But we're lucky. I mean, we've got a group of, uh, you know, our, our Madigat partners and Monomoy partners and just, a, you know, a couple of people that love racing. And in the case of Monomoy Girl, you know, our, our other partners also love racing. So it's been a really easy decision and, a, you know, a really, really special horse. And Brad Cox has done an unbelievable job with her. Florence Ridner in every, uh, in every race of her career. And obviously, you know, Liz Crow. You know, buying a horse like that for $100,000 is special. So it's a, it's a great group, and I'm really excited about her race here coming up in three weeks. But you make an interesting point. You know, with Authentic Now and Monomoy Girl, as with Justify in 2018 and all the other horses that you have, how much of your approach to each horse and each race is businesslike, to which you've also alluded, and how much is emotional or sentimental? <laughs> it's a good question. We try to take a business-like approach to everything. Now, we're human and we're doing this for fun. So there are definitely cases when we kind of look at each other and say, look, a horse like Monomoy Girl doesn't come along very often. Is the smartest financial move to sell her? Maybe. But what are we giving up, you know, in terms of taking a chance to bring her back, right? We did it last year with Midnight Bisu. You know, the smart thing maybe was to sell her coming off, you know, being a champion and we took a step back and said, look, we love racing, you know, and then it turned out that we found this, this race in Saudi Arabia and, you know, she ran second or maybe first, we'll find out. We'll find um, out. And that, yeah, we'll find out. And that was a big purse. And, you know, it turns out even financially, it might've been the right move to keep her in training when at the time it felt like financially the right move might've been to sell her. So we do make emotional, you know, emotional decisions. I've had, you know, some horses that have been named after my kids that I've probably held on to a little bit longer than prudent. But, you know, in general, we, we try to make the right decision. We try to do right by the horse. We, we were lucky enough that we've got a big stable, so we're able to be patient. You know, when horses need time, we give them time. We listen to them. You know, we listen to our trainers and try to be smart. And But most of the time, we're trying to do what the smart financial decision is and not get too emotional, even though, obviously, at times we do. How many people in your group have you been told you can bring to Louisville? Oh, gosh. This year, I don't know. <laughs> in a normal year, we'd have a nice, fun crew. 
this year I'm not even sure I'm going to go, to be honest with you. Wow. It's just, uh, you know, I'm waiting to see what happens with, you know, have the next couple of weeks set up with COVID. I've, I've, I've got a hotel room down there and that's, you know, as, as a backup plan. And I would say 50, 50 that, uh, you know, that I make it. And I've, you know, I've been the last seven or eight years. It's one of my favorite weekends of the year. Uh, we've got actually a, a lot of horses running. We've got speech in the Oaks, uh, and authentic in the Derby and a, you know, model my girl, a bunch of others that are running. So it's kind of an exciting weekend for us, but I don't know. I mean, I just, you know, <laughs> this, this COVID world has made it difficult. Um, so I'd say we'll be a game time decision and, uh, we'll be watching either at Churchill or, uh, you know, or maybe in Saratoga or somewhere else, but we'll see as we get closer. It's hard to speak of anything without the specter of COVID over it, but we certainly wish you the best of luck and good health going forward. Thank you so much for a few minutes, Mr. Kuhlman. Uh, my pleasure. Great to talk to you. Take care. Among those who will not be at Churchill Downs on Derby weekend are the legions of student-athletes whose schools and parents rely on those big days for fundraising. We'll hear from a couple of them when the In the Gate podcast continues. Welcome back to In the Gate. How many people listening to this show have run or participated in a bake sale, pancake breakfast, car wash, pasta dinner, or some other fundraiser for your child's youth or high school sports team? Maybe you had to sell ads for the team's yearbook, and how much fun that is to do. So you know how much work goes into raising money for a youth team. Well, some high schools in the Louisville area usually have a built-in fundraiser that's just about turnkey. A number of student-athletes from area high schools are enlisted to clean up the massive amount of trash generated on Kentucky Oaks and Kentucky Derby days. Their school's teams are paid by Churchill Downs, and everybody wins. Unless there's a pandemic. Capacity at Churchill this September will be cut from a high of somewhere between 150 to 170,000 people on Derby Day and just a little under that on Oaks Day to somewhere around 23,000 each day. That's a lot less garbage, and I would have to think that no one would want young people digging through that stuff and potentially contracting and or spreading the coronavirus. It's yet another victim of the virus, which continues to flow like hot lava from a volcano. To get a better sense of how these high school teams are being affected, we welcome in David Hicks, boys basketball coach at Fairdale High School in Louisville. 
He organizes the student-athletes in his school who participate in the Oaks and Derby cleanup every year. So which sports teams at Fairdale benefit from this annual fundraiser, and how important is it to those teams? Well, we actually had 11 athletic teams or activity groups that participated in the cleaning of last year. So that we've got 11 groups in our athletic department that, that participate in that. And how important is it as a fundraiser? It's huge. As far as monetary, we're talking last year, those 11 groups over a course of four or five days of at different days going in, cleaning in the infield, we, we were able to generate a little over $15,000 for our athletic department. What are people from other high schools in the area who participate every year saying? Are some affected worse than others? Well, I, I think right now, from what I'm when I'm talking to other coaches and other athletic directors, everybody is a little concerned because of being able to generate funds through fundraising. We we don't know what it's going to come as far as our, our crowd capacities. Are they going to limit the crowd capacities for our athletic events, which plays into part of paying our officials, our umpires, our referees, and so we're concerned about how we're going to do that and make ends meet. Just my basketball program that, that I coach, because of this COVID-19, there's been about four or five different fundraisers that we've not been able to participate in during this offseason. And that's that's roughly $11,000 or so we've lost in that funding. And the Derby and Oaks is a part of that. So it, it takes a big hit for all of our sports teams. And it's all the schools across you know the state. Because it's not just Oaks and Derby that we're being shut down on. It's golf scrambles. It's tournaments that you run in the offseason. So it's, it's a whole combination of, of things and variables here. What percentage, roughly, of your fundraising budget is that? Large percentage. I would say roughly, because you do a lot of your fundraising and you try to in the offseason. So it's not interfering with your games and your practices. So I was probably, without looking at paper on paper, I would say roughly 50% or more of your fundraising takes place in the offseason. What do the kids usually say about doing the Oaks Derby garbage cleanup? There's a whole gamut of different responses. For a lot of those kids, you know, they, they get to experience going inside the infield. Many, many of our kids would not be at Churchill Downs or in the infield if it was not for cleaning. So they, they enjoy the experience of seeing the, the grounds and, and what the facilities are like. And then you get the other side of it where they're just grossed out by picking everyone's garbage <laughs> up and the debris that's left. They also are entertained by what people leave behind. You can only, uh, your imagination can wonder what's left behind and we find out they're cleaning. Good Lord. Over your years of organizing and executing this fundraiser, what do you sense the kids learn by cleaning up garbage besides w what people leave behind? Well, they see two different sides of it. You know, I started this very probably in the mid late nineties where we worked booths. We've, we've done anything from serving food to beverages, alcoholic beverages, beer booths. And then about 12, 15 years ago, we went to cleaning because we didn't uh, have to rely on adults as far as figuring out work schedules. So I think the kids have learned that, you know, be a good citizen, pick up after yourselves, use a garbage can nearby because they see the results <laughs> if you don't. The other side of that, I think, is they they just see the, the abundance of people that come into our, our metro or Louisville area because of this event, uh, you know, we have people come all around the world, just not the United States. So 
we actually, our kids will pre-stage and, and start getting into the infielder on the backside before the races are over. So they actually get to see the crowd and, and the all different types of people that are there and they get to people watch. So it, it's just the overall experience of the Derby that they get to take in. As this is a built-in fundraiser ostensibly every year other than this year, then you would think that the kids and parents don't need to learn to innovate. It's just basically plug and play. Now that they can't work the Derby and Oaks, at least this year, and the other fundraisers you mentioned that you can't do, have you heard whether the kids and parents are coming up with alternative ideas? Well, that's the unfortunate thing right now, you know, we are letting in JCPS, we're letting our fall sports practice and workout or actually do workouts and they'll start official practice on the 24th. So our winter sports, our spring sports, we, we've not really had an opportunity to be with our students in person, so to say. I've done or I've had some Zoom calls with my team. So we're not getting to have a lot of in-person or dialogue with our parents or our students to, to discuss those type of things. You know, we, we try to talk about staying safe, making sure we're doing what's necessary to take care of our family and and try to prepare for school and what school is going to be like. So that's the unfortunate thing for our teenagers is they're not getting to do the normal things during the summer that that teenagers do. They're they're doing their best to social distance. And and I think it's that's what we have to look at, too, is how it's affecting these young people mentally. um, They're not getting to participate in sports what they love and get that energy out. So there's a whole gamut of, of variables that play into this and, and what these young kids are experiencing. David Hicks is the boys' basketball coach at Fairdale High School in Louisville. Thank you so much, Mr. Hicks. We hope you stay safe. Barry, I appreciate you having me on, and best of luck to you all. Our thanks once again to David Hicks and to Saul Kuman. I think we all agree that racing worldwide is under scrutiny regarding equine safety and use of drugs. You'd think you'd want to rid the sport of those who favor chemicals, eliminate those most notorious thugs. When Jason Service and Jorge Navarro's drug trials begin, the sport in this country will take a hit. You'll read and hear from pundits thundering down from atop their mountains that racing's just a cesspool, just a pit. So when the British Horse Racing Authority performed a search to replace its outgoing CEO, how come, of all the types of executives the authority could have chosen, they chose an administrator who comes from the sport of cycling, one that's dealt with doping scandals for decades, though I must stress no scandals on her watch. Rumors swirled, though nothing came, but to me, suspicion in racing in Britain going forward kicks up a notch. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn, the Pink Apple Podcatcher app, and of course, in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And please take a minute to rate and review the show. Those reviews really help others find us, even the geniuses at America's Best Racing. Maybe they'll stick us in for Best Podcast in their finalists next year in the Fan Choice Awards. Then again, maybe I should be drinking Clorox, too. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We hope you're safe and healthy as you listen to this, and we'll see you next time.